Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is what's driving the 3PL industry consolidation with my friend, Spencer Tenney. Hi, Spencer. Good to be with you, Joe. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this topic, and I know it's a topic that is ongoing. It's been going on for a while, and I don't see it slowing down. But before we get into all that, Spencer, please introduce yourself and your company. Sure. I'm Spencer Tenney. President and CEO of the Tinney Group. We are a industry specialized merger and acquisition advisory firm uh, based out of Franklin, Tennessee. And that industry is us, right? The logistics and transportation. <laughs> That's all we do, sir. Yes, that's you. And where are you at? Currently, we're based out of Franklin, which is just outside of Nashville. Right in the center of trucking world. <laughs> right, the, the capital of trucking and just right down the road from logistics and, and Chattanooga, apparently. So um, that's the Silicon Valley of tr- trucking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you jumped in at the Tenney Group. Well, grew up in Texas. I'm a third generation guy. My grandfather drove a beer truck and a taxi. Here's a fun <laughs> fact for you, Joe. My, my grandfather was the first white driver to ever work for a black-owned cab company back in the 60s in Dallas. So let's, I know that's a hot topic right now. That's a little fun family trivia for you. My dad started consult in the transportation logistics space back 45 plus years ago, started doing deals. I resisted that, Joe, uh, went my own way for a while, writing songs, making music in Nashville. But quite honestly, there's nothing better than helping people through the process of either growing through an acquisition or helping them realize all of the fruit from the work they put through a building a business. And so that's why I do what I do and been doing that for the most part in my professional career the last 20 years. So right out of high school, did you make your way over to Nashville to become a, a music star? No, no. I, I, I went to University of Texas in Austin and a great experience there and went out to the healthcare for a little while, did that, and then tried songwriting. The number one thing that I did in songwriting is I met my wife. And then after I did that, I was like, it all paid off, learning music and learning how to write a song and, and sing it. <laughs> That's why you went into that business, just so you meet girls. <laughs> So what's your favorite music now? Are you still in Nashville? What's your favorite music? I'm always drawn just to the singer-songwriter stuff, just the very bare storytelling. I think that's what I'm really drawn to. You know, I grew up drawn to to James Taylor, Neil Young, stuff like that. And that's all I could play. I couldn't do any electric stuff, so that's all I could play. But I continue to be drawn to songwriters that kind of fit that same mold today. But I love country music. I mean, how do you you be in Nashville and not love country music? So (laughs) I was down in Nashville quite a bit. I had a customer down there, and I did get used to driving around Nashville. I love the downtown and the energy. It's a great place. And, you know, it's funny. I grew up kind of more of a rock and roll guy, and I always feel like all my rock and roll people are moving to Nashville over time time. The White Stripes or Jack White, he's from Detroit. He's moved down there. And then um, Black Keys, I love that band. They moved out. Well, at least one of those guys moved down there. And I saw Bob Seger last year. Everybody in his band was a country person. I was like, is Bob Seger country now? Like, what happened here? I feel like country's taking over rock and roll. That's probably 15 years ago. Well, maybe 10. I was sitting at a bar. I look over to the side and at the same booth, it's Jack White and Robert Plant just having a whiskey 
right next to my table. I was like, no way. <laughs> this is what it's all about. So today's topic is what's driving the 3PL industry consolidation. And, you know, that is always a hot topic. I've talked about this once or twice before, and it doesn't seem like it's going away. So what's the first reason that we're seeing this industry consolidation? And again, you guys are right in the middle of it. You're helping people sell their business and you're helping other people acquire businesses, right? I don't care how big you are, whether you're a $10 million brokerage firm or you are, you know, a thousand truck carrier or you're a billion dollar, like you're involved and you're affected by what happens right now across the competitive landscape. So I think it's important for us just to address that on the front end, whether you're an owner, whether you're an employee, what's happening right now affects the way you do life. So it's timely. And I think that we'll, we'll have some good conversation that will, there'll be some application for everybody here. And it's funny because as the industry is changing so quickly, it seems as if you've got a lot of tech-centric companies that are growing fast. They tend to be well-capitalized, and they really are transforming the space. And then we have these really big companies, I'll say the J.B. Hunts, the C.H. Robinsons, TQL, I probably name a hundred more. And they're really big, and some of them are publicly traded. They are spending on tech, and they're also spending on sales and marketing in a way that wasn't done before. And I think also just... You know, this has been a hundred phone call a day business for a long time. That's changing. You start to see a lot of people with big marketing dollars. And we're all of a sudden seeing, uh, if you've been doing it the same way for 20 years, it's starting to look a little scary, I imagine, for some companies. So what's the first point that's driving all this? In no particular order, but one of the main things that we see happening is diversification. I think that there's a lot of folks that are looking at acquisitions as a way to diversify. And this is coming out of a period of extreme sensitivity to risk because of COVID. But what COVID helped all of us to see is that if you have all of your eggs in one customer or one industry, there's so much exposure. So I think that what we saw even in the last six months coming to our firm is private equity groups, you know, large strategics is saying like, hey, we know that we have told you that we want you to go bring us these types of deals. Squash that. We have a new profile because we have a new strategy in terms of how we're going to address these market risks and how we're going to win the future. And a big part of that's going to be through diversification. So when you say diversification, they might say we're in three regions across the country, but we don't have anything out east. So we want to look for either a trucking company or a broker who's heavy on the east coast. Or it could be industry related, which is saying like, hey, we're really heavy in oil and gas and we got crushed. So like what we need to do is to get some retail or automotive or whatever makes sense. To mix it up. And so that no matter what happens in the economy, that you're there's never a situation where it's game over. You can always pivot, right. you can do some things. And so that's where the sensitivity is. And I got to think there's also, if you were somebody who said, hey, we are really heavy in retail, and all of a sudden you go, God, look at all this e-commerce. Should I be worried? Well, maybe. Uh, maybe you should just invest in something that's going to let you have some exposure more to the e-commerce growth. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the areas on huh? diversification. And I think that a private equity, especially who has to go, they have a responsibility. I mean, they want to be out of this thing. I think part of their growth strategy is you have to look at from the lens. Do I want to continue to double down on what I currently have, even if it's working? And what we're seeing is that many of them feel less cavalier about doing that than what they may have even two years ago. I think that the good thing about that is, is through making those moves, they're de-risking the business as a whole for their employees, for everybody. And those are all solid business moves that we're seeing across the board. Maybe a year of sitting at the house contemplating what you're doing with your life made them say, 
Then we got too much risk on the table. Well, this is an all-in business no matter what. So I don't know, like you, you can't remove all the risks, but I certainly think that you right. can kind of limit them to some degree. So the companies desire, especially private equity, to diversify. So what's another thing that's driving this consolidation? Well, I would say one has to do with just understanding and getting more control over the supply chain itself. Just, hey, this is a very unforgiving, whether you're on the truckload or you're on the, the logistics side, it's a very unforgiving space. So what we're seeing a lot of folks doing is saying, like, we need our hands on more on different parts of the supply chain to better enhance our ability to create profits. And so we did three final mile deals over the last 12 months because people are saying like, hey, there's an opportunity here. There's disruption. And if we can get our hands on this, there's major upside. Logistics players that were over the road that didn't really have a handle on this are saying, hey, this is a way for us to differentiate, to go specialize in a certain area. And that's driving a lot of consolidation, looking for these little niches where if you can figure it out, there's much profit to be made. I think about every third podcast we talk about, if you're 3PL or if you're in logistics at all, is you need a niche, whether you're a company or a person, pick a niche because that's what people are looking for. And that keeps coming up over and over again. If I'm going to work with somebody, I want them to specialize in my business. I don't want to be treated, you know, the retail guy doesn't want to be treated the same way the oil guy wants to be treated. Everyone wants you to understand their business and be able to say, yeah, my service is specialized for you. So first one was this idea of diversification. Second is just people want more control over that whole supply chain and to be able to make cash. So what's another one? Uh, let me just add to that just for some context. We've had publicly traded truckload companies come to us and they have nothing going on in the brokerage side of things at all. And for the first time, and in some cases, 40 years, they're saying, hey, we want to be in the brokerage space. We're not going to try to do that on our own. And so what's happening is, is like, hey, this is going to be a part of our strategy. Like you said, we want to specialize, we want to do this, but we're not going to assume that we can figure it out. Like we're going to go acquire an established brokerage arm. What does that mean? They want infrastructure in place. They want the talent. And there's a lot of that available. So I think that what's happening from the consolidation, it's the marrying of someone who desperately needs something that's going to help them have more control over that supply chain. And then the actual selling parties desperate for someone who has some capital that can help it realize its full potential. And there's a lot of that. For a long time, it seemed like trucking companies were buying freight brokerage companies. And I understand why, because they look and say, hey, that's the sales force we've never really had. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who get us our backhauls. <laughs> so it worked very well for a lot of those companies. So what's uh, another reason that we see this consolidation in the space? I, I think part of it's just growth, especially on the truckload side. I mean, it's so low margin. I mean, this is an exciting time. I've listened to some of your guests and there is so much to be excited about from a technology standpoint of what's happening in this space. Why does that matter in terms of the consolidation? Because in order to fully capitalize on all of this innovation, you need scale. You have to have volume to spread that across to fully capitalize on the great thinkers of this industry. That's driving a huge portion of it. And this is a related factor is why is it so pronounced right now is because of access to cap and how cheap debt is. Because people are like, hey, if we're right. going to make a move, we got to make it now and we got to do it fast. I mean, you really have to go back and look and go, are we guess this new software five years ago? Are we behind all of a sudden? <laughs> right? Is the industry moving past us? So, yeah, it's gotten really crazy. So when you talk about that growth, you know, you could say we're a company, we're moving forward. We're going to hire some more sales marketing guys to grow. Or you could say, or I'm going to take this cheap money and go buy somebody who's already got the talent, who's already got the relationships and maybe physical locations even, right? 
That's exactly what's happening. Ultimately, they're buying relationships. There's companies that they've gone to zero to a hundred million in the brokerage side in five years. And that's, that's a pretty common story right now. And so if you can go out and buy those relationships, pay fair market value to do that, all that does is just accelerate it. Instead of right. five years, you got it in day one. And so all the impact, right. all the synergies, all of the impacts to the network, you know, it's just a great way to accelerate impact. And it probably wouldn't be happening if money wasn't as plentiful and as inexpensive as it is right now. Without question. I mean, that has a huge part of it. And it seems like all of a sudden this became like real sexy business. For It seemed like forever logistics was like, who cares, right? It's just trucks and um, warehouses and stuff. And then all of a sudden it became... I guess all the e-commerce guys and all that tech money just made it sound interesting all of a sudden. I think when we started referring to it as a technology industry, that's why when the multiples (laughs) started going up arbitrarily, like, I don't know why, but because it's tech, I think this is what's interesting about right now. Each of the last three years, people are like, well, these valuations, they're going to level off. They're going to level off. They're going to normalize, but that really hasn't happened. Now, I do believe that that's going to happen now, but we're coming on a five-year trend and which publicly traded companies on logistics, I mean, they're trading it 17 times, which is insane. I do think that there will be a normalization, not like a dramatic one, just like, you know, in any industry, you're not going to go five straight years of valuation increase and not have some recalibration. I do think that's another driver as part of uh, that kind of comes back into that because there's folks that are kind of at that point where, hey, we got to go double down or maybe take the chips off and just kind of get what we can right now because it's pretty incredible. So what's another thing that's driving this consolidation in the industry? Well, I touched on this a minute ago, but a lot of it has to do with talent. You talk about the complexities, you talk about the tech, you talk about what's required to win the future. This is not your grandfather's trucking and logistics industry anymore. And I think the reality is, is that on the truckload, people have, they spent a lifetime understanding how to do this. On the logistics, it seems to be much more fluid as far as how you do it and how you win. And so what we're seeing in terms of an investment standpoint is people are buying talent, they're buying people to help them win the future rather than I mean, of course, they're buying the business, but the emphasis is on that talent. And so for other reasons, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of humility at saying, hey, like we want to go buy the team. We want right. to buy you to go help take this to the next level. And we'll capitalize you and resource you so that you don't have right. to have all of it on your shoulders and you can move forward and go do some great things. But together, we'll be very special. I got to think there's also guys who are closer to the end of their business career than uh, to the beginning who started companies and they said, hey, I started this company. Maybe it's a warehouse or a trucking company or a, a brokerage. And now they're looking and saying, gosh, I've done really well. I've made some money, but I'm not a tech guy and I don't even know who to hire or how to hire. I don't know how to get to that I don't want to take this huge risk on something I don't understand. And I remember I heard Warren Buffett. Now, granted, he's like 90. He, for a long time, struggled with investing mm-hmm. in tech stocks. He says, because I don't know how to value them. And it was just kind of this recognition that I'm not a dummy. I'm not from that world. So I don't know how to value. And that whole thing where people were, hey, we're not making any money, but we're growing. <laughs> he didn't understand it, so he didn't invest in it. Yeah. So I think there's some of that going on, right? It's definitely going on. And I think what's interesting is where we see the signals for that, it's typically from the employees. We talked about it on the very front end of the conversation. Like, where's the application to the employees for this conversation? It's right here. It's usually the employees that they're the first ones to indicate to the owner that something's wrong. Because when they start realizing that my career opportunities are being stifled, I'm not getting opportunities to grow. And it's because in an industry where you have to have pedal down all the time, the owner's pumping the brakes constantly. So what ends up happening is only till owners start losing talent, do they start realizing it's like, 
I have to take the chips off the table because I'm not prepared right. to do what's required to continue to be successful in the way that I've been successful in the past. So they send Spencer a fax and say, I think it's time for me to get out. Like in newspaper <laughs> clippings of letters, like this person needs to sell. <laughs> no, I think honestly, we've had through the years, we've had people that care for their owners that just say like that they help facilitate that conversation. And it also goes the other way too. Sometimes without any prompting, it's the owner that says, I care for my people so much. They made this business happen. I need to find them a new home. I need to find them a home where they right. can prosper and they can realize their own personal potential. And we just did a deal, a final mile deal out in, in Cedar Rapids. And that was the same deal. I mean, we had probably six different offers with 40 different, probably $40 million deals from the lowest to the highest offer and left money on the table because he said, this is the best home for my employees. They're not going to have to relocate. They're going to get to stay here. They're going to have career advancement opportunities. And that's a pretty amazing thing to be a part of a process where you have a founder who's saying, not just the money, but the people that helped me do this, I'm going to highly consider and weigh what's best for them as part of this decision. It's a changing space. And it's interesting because I don't think we've seen this anywhere until the last 20 years where there's so much money available for good ideas. So like you look at like businesses like Amazon or Facebook, they just ate money for a long time and it didn't seem to matter. Like, hey, we've got a good idea here. We're going to, we know we're going to make money at some point. We're just going to keep scaling. And it seems like that was an isolated case back in the day, but not anymore. Now it seems as if private equity or more venture capital says, hey, we know we're going to transform this space and it might not happen in the next year or two, but who cares? And they, they just keep spending. Yeah. So, and, and we, we also talk about the demand from consumers. Uh, my Guy Quatan on my podcast, and he was talking about a lot of times when we get these free delivery or same day, next day, he says there's money lost on those transactions. Right. And there's somebody in venture capitalists and saying, that's fine. We'll lose money for a while. But it's kind of setting expectations in the, by the consumers that, Shipping is free. <laughs> I will never pay for it. That meal's cooked right there, Joe. I mean, that's that's done. I mean, if my if my three year old daughter can get on a Amazon or a Alexa and say, Amazon, order what? And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> that kind of puts in perspective how unrealistic the expectations and how little we actually understand about what makes this logistic system go, which is a modern day miracle. I read a book called Door to Door. This is probably five years ago. And it talked about how the modern day logistic system is literally the greatest achievement in the history of mankind. And and I don't disagree. The expectations of both the consumer and the shippers continue to become more complex and more demanding. And so unless there is an industry consolidation, it becomes very difficult to meet those needs in a way that's going to be satisfactory. Right. Just as we kind of are exiting the COVID era, it's amazing what, even through this pandemic, I can speak for myself, I wasn't worried like, am I going to starve to death at my house? I was worried, will I gain weight? (laughs) What will I do because I can't go to my gym? And go back a 100 years to the Spanish flu epidemic. That was way worse. But mankind has always had pandemics. But look how we came through this. It's been unpleasant for sure. And we've lost lives and everyone is uh, horrible. But overall, other than us bitching a lot, it's uh, not been that bad. We all survived this thing. It's amazing. And that's a tribute to the supply chain. Even with some people off on the sidelines, the supply chain and logistics world stepped up and made this thing a lot better than it would have been. I would say that one of the really great things are that I experienced during code was the conversations when people asked me what I do. And I would say, like, you see these trucks going down the road, I get to work with those people. I get to help them 
grow, build value through acquisitions. I get to help them sell. Because for the first time, people were looking at our supply chain workers as like, they're like legitimately keeping us moving and important. It was neat for people to understand what I do in that context and to be able to appreciate our clients the way that I appreciate them. It was pretty special. The essential workers and hospitals and uh, retail and everywhere else deserve credit, but let's face it, they don't do their job until uh, transportation logistics business does their job. So we're very lucky to be part of it. So um, why don't you summarize this? So what what are some of the, just to give us a summary of what's driving this consolidation, then we'll wrap this bad boy up. We talk about access to money. We talk about diversification, the need to kind of spread risk across different customers and industry segments. Uh, to reduce exposure. Talk about the necessary, how necessary it is to grow, to fully capitalize on the available innovations within this industry. And the other part of it is just the, the, the recognition that there is a new guard that's coming in that's ready to assume right. those risks of what's being required. And you, and you put all that together and what you can anticipate is some pretty significant changes within the competitive landscape. Whether you participate in that actively or not. It's happening. It, it's happening. So I think that to me, I think the exciting part of it about that is that whether you're an employee, a leader of an organization, or a stockholder, there's an opportunity here to do some pretty amazing things. I fully believe that there's a next generation that's rising up within the trekking logistics space that's going to just transform the way we think about well, it. They're, do- they're doing it as we watch. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, I think it's an exciting time, and my challenge to those out there is just take your place. Take your place. Make your mark, because this is the time to do it. Before you go, what's going on over at the Tenney Group? Uh, we continue to be be active. I mean, I think that our deals, we represent currently anything from dedicated trucking to refrigerated to brokerage, anything that you take haulers, anything that you can imagine that's trucking logistics, we have our hands on it right now that we're representing across the United States. Most of the profile of owners that we help are probably going to be somewhere between that 20 to $200 million in annual revenue. Sometimes they go higher, sometimes they're lower. Of course, we're working with the largest buyers within the world that are in this space. I mean, our main deal is this. This is a time where there's lots of opportunity, but there's also lots of questions. And so everything with us is about relationship. And so my encouragement for those that are kind of trying to figure this out, we can be a resource to folks to try to navigate what this next step looks like, whether it's building value through acquisitions or whether it's planning an exit so that you can make sure that your employees have the right home set up for the future when you decide to take your chips off the table. It's our great pleasure and, uh, I would just, if you want to find us, you just go to thetinnygroup.com or you can email us at stenny at thetinnygroup.com. I'll put a link to your website and to your LinkedIn profile on the uh, in the show notes. Talk about the two, you have two customers. One is the, the sellers, the guys who own these businesses. So you work with a lot of those guys? Yes, probably about 80% of our work is we're, we're representing the owners of the companies that's being sold. So we're doing sell-side advisory. Okay. And, and so I know this from my own experience. That is not an overnight thing. If I decide I'm going to sell my business, that isn't, oh, I'll sell it tomorrow or the next day or next week. That could take years, right? I think part of the deal is it starts with education. And I think that people, in order to make the most of it, you need to start educating yourself about what's actually going to drive value when you do decide to Which, close so that you have enough runway right. to actually impact that future event. So I think that's part of the deal that we can be helpful reducing owner dependence, which we didn't get into much, but that's a huge value driver. Something that employees listening, you can have a huge influence over driving value and adding value to it for yourself, your career. So I think those are some of the main things to consider 
you know, moving forward. So if somebody's going to sell, they should reach out to you ideally a little beforehand. So you can't sell it overnight. They, they might, there might be some prep to that point. You can educate them. Just saying at the very least, you know, as part of a conversation, what we can equip people to do is just without even soliciting it, people are going to come to you and start making offers on your business. So how do you handle that in a way that you can right. protect confidentiality, but also make sure that you're in the know in terms of what's going on. So we can help you with that as right. well. And then you have bigger companies who are looking to acquire, right? So talk about that. If you don't already have a profile set up within our system of the types of deals, what is your overall strategy? What are you trying to accomplish? If you haven't had a conversation with our team about what that is, my encouragement is is take care of that because we can be a significant source of deal flow for you to bring opportunities that fit, that are efficient. And uh, I mean, we've had buyers that we've done over a dozen deals with because we've had that relationship set up and we can just say, hey, we understand what you're trying to do. This fits that strategy. Here's what you have to do to be competitive to get this deal. So what's the hottest area you're working in lately? What's everybody calling about? The final mile is a big deal because it's such a fragmented industry and there's so few experts that can be helpful. So that's why, you know, we just did this NRX Logistics with Cardinal Logistics. We did the uh, Linstar transfer with Ford Air. And the motivations behind those deals is that, hey, we want an expert. We want someone who's proven they have the relationships and they understand how to be successful in the space because that's what's going to allow us, that investment's going to allow us to, to save so much money in mistakes that we don't have to make. When you talk about final mile, is that mostly like e-commerce stuff being delivered to home? Yes, but a lot of it has to do with, you know, the complexity of doing the big and bulky a white glove over the threshold home deliveries. That's the Peloton or the Nordic track or uh, maybe a big screen TV and all that stuff, right? Exactly. And so one of the most cumbersome parts of the supply chain. And so because of that, that's a big opportunity. If you can figure out how to do that effectively, so much, uh, well, number one, there's so much demand for that. But if you can figure out how to do it, and I think that the folks that have bought these businesses believe that through resourcing a proven formula, they'll make it even better. So I think that's what the excitement is. Yeah, well, it's not easy. I've always said when you're delivering to a home, it's a whole different thing because we're used to, this whole industry is used to delivering to professional receivers. The same driver's been going over and he says, hey, Dave, hey, Bob, how you doing? And they they do their thing all the time. Now I'm delivering to somebody, like if you're like me and I, I work from home, somebody knocks at my door, I'm like, ugh. I don't know who they could be selling siding. I'm not even going to answer. Or half the world is just looking at their ring, Mm -hmm. their their ring camera and going, "Eh, I don't know that guy. I'm not going to answer. And so there's dogs chasing you and bad addresses and bad streets. I mean, that's not an easy business. So I understand why why you would rather buy that expertise than have to learn all those hard lessons on your own. I would say that the other one that I would add to that's pretty hot right now is just the brokerage. I mean, we have a handful of smaller brokerage firms kind of between between that 10 to 30 million, that's a much better cost-effective alternative for someone who wants to get in that space than to try to do it on their own. And so those deals are getting a lot of attention right now. And I don't think that would have been the case five years ago. Now, is it big brokers buying small brokers or is it trucking companies buying small brokers or both? Well, it's both. For the smaller ones, it's primarily truckload that want to get in the space, that they want to expand and diversify. We're certainly seeing, you know, the larger players buy the logistics firms, but they want something a little bit more substantial if they've already got something in place. They're both getting attention, but I think what's unique about right now is that some of the smaller brokerage firms are getting a lot more attention than they've gotten in the last three to five years. I haven't looked lately, maybe you already know the answer to this, but I think Wall Street was valuing companies that were considered asset light, meaning we have our own trucks, but we're also a brokerage. Asset light, more a dollar earned in that business was worth more than a dollar earned over in uh, 
full truck, just truckload or in brokerage. So Wall Street saw some value in in those companies. They're, they're valued higher. Now, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand Wall Street or their methods because uh, – <laughs> I, I don't, I don't see it, but it's very true. For whatever reason, the, the, the multiples that asset light companies trade at is quite a bit higher than pure traditional truckload. So that's why companies are doing it. Well, this is excellent. I appreciate you taking the time, Spencer, and it was good, good to get to know you. And, uh, this is a very interesting piece of the business. It is certainly not going away. We're going to keep seeing consolidation for a long time. Well, we'll see. And I think there will be a lot of great things that happen. And we'll probably need to circle back, get a little review later on. We'll see what happened. Thank you so much, Spencer. And thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Joe. And thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 